Amen. It's been a joy already to do just that with you, to worship God, to worship Christ. Um, the scriptures read this morning, the songs that we've sung have been relentlessly focused on who Jesus is and his glory and his work on our behalf, and he deserves our worship. I want to thank Andrew and the other guys for serving us so well this morning. You may have noticed uh, there's been a little bit of a shift in sort of who's up here. We're typically being led by Kerry Wilson. His wife, Tally, often plays. There's other musicians who volunteer as well uh, due to some of Kerry's work responsibilities. He just doesn't have the time right now to, to devote to the planning and organization of some of our worship ministry. But we're excited for his schedule to shift and him to be able to jump back in. Uh, he loves leading us in worship. And even without the microphone, I could hear Kerry singing this morning. Um, at the top of his lungs, and that is a blessing. So I hope that you will pray for him, that, that God would give him grace during a season um, where he's being very stretched. There's a lot of demands on him. We're thankful that Andrew and the others are willing to sort of pinch hit and step in for the next several weeks until Carrie's able to return. I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to uh, Revelation chapter 2. We began a series last week um, looking at the letters to these seven different churches. Last week was actually an introduction to that where we looked at chapter one, who it is that speaks to the churches. And it's the one we've been singing about this morning. It's the glorious Christ, uh, the one who is risen from the dead, the one who is infinite in power and glory. He's the one who's talking. And we're going to look now at these seven letters to seven churches and consider what they have to say to us. Um, I know we have a few college students here this morning. We have some grad students, at least one law student, PhD student, some elementary students, and so you guys are wrapping up your semester, your school year, and so you're probably aware of a a word, the word rubric. How many of you guys hear that word? Rubric, a grading rubric. That's not a word that the rest of us who aren't in an academic environment probably use very often. Sometimes I help my wife grade papers. Um, She likes grading the math. I like grading the papers. We sort of divide that up sometimes. And there's usually a grading rubric, and that rubric basically explains what are the criteria for grading this project or grading this assignment. What is it that the teacher is looking for? If it's a fourth grade, you know, essay, well, we want to see descriptive language and a clear structure with an introduction and conclusion. If it's a graduate research project, they want to see you interacting with, you know, first level, you know, original sources. There's these different grading rubrics that the teacher or the professor or your committee, whatever it is, they're going to use that as they analyze your work to determine what the expectations are. Just to remind you, in this opening scene of Revelation, John records for us his vision of Christ, who Jesus is. We're reminded that he is the risen Lord, and he is therefore the judge of all the earth, and the head of the church. And Jesus has something to say to the church. And we need to pay attention to what Jesus says because Jesus is revealing to us the rubric, what it is that he's looking for, what it is that he's evaluating as his all-seeing eyes gaze upon the church. What are Jesus' expectations for what we are supposed to be at Redemption Hill, how we are to live, how we are to worship? What is the rubric? Well, these seven letters are given to us. They're written to real historical churches. These were real cities and real congregations that gathered for worship on the Lord's Day. But the challenges to these early churches are relevant in every age. 
They speak to us because at every point in history, there's churches just like these that have the same strengths and the same weaknesses. And if we look carefully, we will be looking in the mirror. We'll see things that reflect upon us. And therefore, we need the same word from Christ that these churches needed in that day. And from this first letter here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, this letter to Ephesus, what we discover is that there is a key virtue that Jesus expects to see, that he desires to see in his church. Jesus desires a faithful church that is marked by love. That's the point in this letter to Ephesus. Let's read it together. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. You follow along as I read. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Lord Jesus, as we sit underneath the truth of your word this morning, please give us ears to hear. Let us hear what your spirit would say to us today through this text, to this church. And Lord, produce in us the change that you desire to see, that we might be a faithful church that gives you the honor and glory that you so richly deserve. Amen. So this letter, this first of seven, is addressed to the church specifically at Ephesus. Chapter 2, verse 1 tells us that. The the city of Ephesus uh, is a city that was in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. And it was an important city in its day for a number of reasons. It it was built uh, at the mouth of this large river that emptied into the sea. And so that made it a perfect harbor. There, There was shipping that could come in. Uh, to that harbor, and then could even go upriver to other cities that were downstream. In addition to being a, a center for shipping and commerce that way, there were four major roadways, these highways, that all converged at Ephesus, um, these trade routes that intersected the city. So because of that, it was really a gateway to the whole region. It was a gateway both by land and by sea. And so because of this, the city of Ephesus would have been the first city on the mail route. So if you were delivering a letter, like this letter that the Apostle John wrote from Patmos, you would have hopped off the boat at Ephesus. That would have been the first place you would have made your deliveries. So it's naturally the first city on the mail route. Um, So it's the first city that's addressed in Revelation. John's letter would have arrived here. The city was famous for being home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There's a massive temple to Artemis. That's the, the Greek name for this god. It was, the Romans called this god Diana. And the worship of this pagan god at this massive temple that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 
the worship of this God was really central to the culture of that city. Uh, that was what made them unique in their region. And it was central not just to their culture, their customs, their way of life, their, their worldview. It was central to their economy as well. It was big business. It was actually a bank. Wealthy people stored their resources in one of the center vaults in this temple. So it was a center for worship, a center for banking as well. And because the worship of this pagan god was such a dominating force in this city, it meant this city had a great need for the gospel. This is a place where Christ needed to be preached. There was a great need because of their spiritual darkness. But also, because of that, there was a lot of hostility to the gospel. The Apostle Paul, when we read the book of Acts, he made a huge splash in this city on one of his missionary journeys. He was coming through this city, and there was great works of healing and deliverance. He was preaching the gospel, and many, many people were responding. In Acts chapter 19, verse 18, it tells us many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The apostle Paul, as he preaches the gospel, is seeing massive response to the truth of Christ. Massive amounts of repentance change. People are coming and they're confessing, divulging their practices, and they're, they're giving up their old pagan ways of worship, their interaction with these false gods. There's really no such thing as false gods. Any power or experience that was there was really demonic. And these people had, had been immersed in that, and they're coming forward having believed in the gospel. They're turning away from all that. They're burning all their books And the value of that was 50,000 pieces of silver. The cost for a slave was 30 pieces of silver, just to put that in perspective. So there is a massive turning and repentance that's taking place. And this ministry was so effective, the ministry that Paul had, that it started a riot. There's a man named Demetrius who was a silversmith. You could basically think of him as the union boss, the local union boss who made money off of building idols. Now, if everybody in your town stops buying, that hurts your bottom line, doesn't it? So Demetrius automatically became an opponent of the gospel. He recognized what what was happening to their local economy, so he gathered a bunch of the locals together, and this massive riot begins. It's funny, Luke, in the book of Acts, he calls it no small disturbance. I love that, very sort of understated description, no small disturbance. When the authorities sort of realized what was happening, and they tried to calm everything down, The mob shouted them down, and they chanted for two straight hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, think about that. Think about a riot where for two straight hours, the mob is shouting down the Roman authorities and the local authorities who are trying to get everything under control. This mob almost tore Paul into pieces. Paul ended up doing ministry there for about two years, according to Acts chapter 20. He had a long, faithful ministry there. Timothy, his apprentice, would later minister there in Ephesus. He would pastor that church, along with Tychicus, another one of Paul's associates. And then later on, the apostle John, the author of Revelation, he did ministry in Ephesus. He became the leader and the pastor there. So this church had quite the legacy of leadership. Imagine if you could say that Paul and Timothy and the apostle John had all been the regular preachers and teachers in your church. That's pretty awesome. 
So as you can imagine, because of this legacy of leadership, because of their strategic location in the, in the region, because of their theological heritage, having been taught by apostles like Paul and, and John, Ephesus really became sort of the, the mother church in the region. They were the center of ministry from which other churches were planted and strengthened. So Ephesus was a very prominent and influential church for all of these different reasons. And so these are the guys that John writes to first. He writes to them. Now, what is said to them will be read by all, and it does apply to all, and it's intended to apply to us as well. And so I want to look at this letter and look at what John writes, what Jesus says to the churches, and highlight a couple of insights just to help us understand what is the rubric, what is it that Jesus is looking for when he evaluates his church, what are his expectations and desires. Three insights. Number one, loyalty to Christ is both seen and valued. Loyalty to Christ is seen and valued. To the angel or to the the messenger of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, listen to what Jesus says. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Two times Jesus says, I know, I know. He sees and he values what it is that they're doing right. We're told in chapter 1, verse 14, that the eyes of Christ are described like Flames of fire, that he sees everything, this all-penetrating gaze. And he says, I I know, I see you, and I see what you're dealing with, and I see your faithfulness. I see your loyalty to my name and to my word. Because Jesus is described here in the opening verses as walking among the lampstands. These lampstands represent the churches. Jesus is saying, I'm intimately aware of all that's going on. He's not blind. He's not far off. He knows their works, and he knows that they're doing a lot right. They are. He says, I know your toil. You're doing things that are right and that are necessary and that are difficult. He says, I see that. I I value that. You've not grown weary in well-doing. This is commendable. It's commendable. He says, I know your patient endurance. Listen, it's not easy to swim upstream. It's not easy to go completely counter to a pagan culture. But these Christians were doing that in Ephesus. There was great opposition. There was great difficulty, even great persecution. That riot that almost tore Paul in pieces was not the last time that Christians and and the message of the gospel would be opposed by people who had an agenda that was contrary to Christ. These were people who would not worship Artemis. They would not bow the knee to the emperor. And because of that, their life was hard. But they didn't quit. They didn't compromise. They took no shortcuts. He says, I know your patient endurance. He says, I know that you cannot bear with those who are evil. These believers had taken heed to Paul's last words to them in Acts chapter 20. As Paul prepared to depart after being there with them for two years, Paul wrote this in Acts chapter 20, 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves. And to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's speaking to the pastors, the elders at the church. 
These, he said, the Spirit, uh, Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained for his own blood. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Paul had warned them. There's going to be false teachers. There's going to be shepherds who are not feeding the flock. They're they're predatory. They're going to seek to draw people away from Christ. You need to be alert. You need to be on guard. And these people were. They've been diligent to examine and to reject those who falsely claimed to be apostles and those who promoted false doctrine that would lead people away from Christ. They had great discernment, great wisdom. In every age, in every church, there's always a danger of people cropping up who seek to lead the church astray, people who seek to make a few dollars off of ministry, people who want to gain influence and power over people, People who want to to utilize the church to gain glory, to gain reputation, to gain influence for themselves. This same author who wrote Revelation, the Apostle John, wrote in 1 John 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Listen, there is a danger in a church being naive swallowing everything it hears, not exercising discernment, not carefully comparing the truth that you hear and the character of those who speak that truth to the word of God. But this church had done it well. They had been faithful in this regard. They had zero tolerance for false doctrine and zero tolerance for the false teachers who promoted that false doctrine. They insisted on the truth. And all this was done, Jesus says, you did this, verse 3, Bearing up under all of this for my name's sake. For my name's sake. And Jesus says, I see that. I know your works. And Jesus values that. He commends them. In addition to rejecting these false apostles, they also hated the works of the Nicolaitans. We see that down in verse 6. We aren't exactly sure who this group is. That People try to figure it out. It might just be a group of people who followed some guy named Nicholas. So they're sort of named after him. That's one option. Or we could understand this as the Greek word uh, for overcomer, or for overcome, it's a verb, is nikeo. It's, it's, maybe you're familiar with the brand Nike. You know, just do it, to be overcomers, to be victors. That's a Greek word, nikeo, which means to, to overcome, to be victorious. So perhaps this is a group that, that titled themselves the overcomers. In any case, it was a sect. It was a supposedly Christian group, one that appears to have embraced immoral practices. We look later on in chapter 2, we find uh, this group is brought up again in the letter to Pergamum. And that letter associates this group with the teaching of Balaam. Now, if you've read your Old Testament, you might know who Balaam is. He was a historical false prophet who led Israel into great sin by mixing the worship of Yahweh with pagan idol worship that included much immorality. There's a lot of kids in the room, so I'm not going to explain all the worship practices that took place in the temple of Artemis. You can probably fill in the blanks and figure out what all it involved. Um, So this group, the Nicolaitans, were blending the pagan immorality of Ephesus with the tenets of Christianity. It was mixed together. 
We see that a lot today, don't we? There's some who want to take the immoral behavior of the world or ungodly ideologies that don't come from Christ. It comes from the wisdom of man, and people want to baptize that. There's this syncretism today where the pure truth of Christianity, the pure truth of the gospel, the pure truth of God's word gets mixed with other things coming in from outside. And some people claim that, listen, God is okay with this. We see that with the infiltration of LGBTQ ideology into the church. We see it with the tolerance of pornography in the church. We see it in those who abuse grace and they turn it into a license to sin. These behaviors may be accepted by the world, but they are hated by God. Verse 6 says, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Listen, Jesus hates immorality. And so did these believers. And that's not always easy. It's not always popular. So Christ commends them for that. He affirms them. Godly hatred of wickedness actually pleases God. So loyalty to Christ is seen and valued. Jesus commends the faithfulness that he sees in this church. There's a second insight we draw from this letter. Love for Christ is essential. Love for Christ is essential. He commends them, but he also has a criticism. Verse 4. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Jesus commends them for much, but he has this criticism. He says, I have this against you. And just so that we remember how big a deal this is, remember who the I is in this sentence. I, I who walk among the lampstands. I who hold the seven stars in my hand. I who am the living one who died and rose again, who holds the keys to death and hell. Remember this glorious vision of Christ we saw in chapter one. He says, I have this against you. You see, Jesus not only sees and knows and approves of their faithful works, he also sees their failures. He sees their weaknesses. He says they have left the love they had at the first. What is this love that, that Jesus refers to? As I was studying this this week, wrestling with this, it seems like there's kind of two different options. This could mean their love for Christ. It could mean their, their love for Jesus himself has grown cold. Or perhaps it means their expression of love towards others. I sort of leaned towards this at first because a lack of love for people would seem to maybe go with a church that had become very, very strident in their doctrine, very, very discerning, very, very on guard um, and, and faithfully condemning immorality and sin. And it says that they have done all this for the sake of Christ's name. So maybe there is still some love for Christ here. But the more I wrestled through this, I really think it's hard to separate love for Christ and love for people. They go hand in hand. If you claim to love Jesus and you don't love his people, that's a contradiction. It's a contradiction. John wrote in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So I think it's best if we take this love that they've abandoned and probably identify it that it's a love for Christ that's supposed to be expressed in love for people. And there's something missing. There's something missing. 
This church was winning the battle against external threats. They were resisting false teaching. They were enduring persecution and opposition. Those are threats that come from the outside. But they were losing in one crucial internal arena, the realm of the heart. Good works being present does not absolve us, church, from a failure to love. Paul told the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, you know, the, most, the most intense and, and sacrificial you know, martyrdom imaginable. He says, if I have not love, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. Listen, the heart is God's chief concern. His chief concern for you today is your heart. Where is your heart? Moses told Israel in the Old Testament they needed to circumcise their hearts. The miracle of salvation, according to the promise in Jeremiah, includes a new heart. The greatest commandment that Jesus gives us is to love the Lord our God with all our heart. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.5, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. God cares about the heart. Our heart is the place from which love is directed to God, which results then in worship and obedience and good works. And here's the scary reality. It's possible for that love to fade. Imagine a marriage for a moment, a marriage that is faithful, faithful and committed, a marriage where they are together. They're in agreement about decisions for their household and the direction for their family. A marriage that is cooperative, where both of them have settled into these ideal roles, where they bounce perfectly off each other, and they work wonderfully together as a team. A marriage that is really convenient. It it does work well. Everything functions as it should. But in that marriage, the love is gone. It's cold. Maybe you don't have to imagine very hard. Some people have experienced that. Scripture describes the church often as the bride of Christ. This is a marriage that we're in. And Christ, as the bridegroom, has lovingly laid down his life. He's given everything to redeem us for himself. But there's a real danger of our love for Christ growing cold. Why does that happen? How do we lose the love we had at the first? I think if we grow cold in our love for Christ, that's evident that we've probably started loving something else. 2 Timothy 3.1 talks about the danger of a different love. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self. There it is. Lovers of money. There it is again. Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, Heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. 
When our love for Christ grows cold, it's because there's a different love that has started to displace it. Love for self, love for money, love for pleasure. Love for those things displaces love for God. So does love for the praise of man. John chapter 12, 43 speaks of some who would not follow Christ. It says they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Is it possible that our lives become oriented around what other people think of us and the respect or the admiration or the appreciation or the affection that we think we can get from other people? That will displace love for God. Jesus says of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, being called rabbi by others. Love for the praise of man will displace genuine love for Christ. There's also a danger of loving the world. Again, John writes in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Did you catch that? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's either or. You can't love both. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, because of lawlessness, because Lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will grow cold. It happened in Ephesus. They left the love they had at the first. What's the solution for that? Jesus calls them to action. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. There's three steps here that he gives. First of all, remember. Remember, at one point in time, they had been doing well in this area. But listen, momentary, temporary obedience is not enough. Christ calls them to think back, to to remember how things used to be. Believer, if you're a Christian today, do you remember what it felt like when your heart was first turned towards Christ? Do you remember that moment? Maybe you were a kid. Maybe you were an adult. Maybe it was the first time you'd ever heard it. Maybe you grew up with it, but it was never real until it was. But do you remember that moment where the gospel became real to you? When you first understood the staggering grace that Jesus offers to sinners? Do you remember when you first understood the incomparable love that Christ showed on the cross? When he laid down his life for you? Do you remember that first time when you experienced the exhilarating hope of eternal life, where you looked at death differently than you had before? Do you remember those first breaths of freedom as your chains were broken and that awareness dawned on you that that you were no longer a slave to sin and you've just been adopted into the family of God? Do you remember what that felt like? We need to. If your love has grown cold, Jesus says, remember, 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 therefore, from where you have fallen. And then secondly, he says, repent. To repent means to turn. If that's a new word for you, I would encourage you, go back and listen to the the Sunday school class that Pastor Stephen taught this morning. He gave a great overview of repentance and faith, this turning from sin and turning to Christ 
Jesus just exhorts us here to repent. He says, turn away from lesser loves. Turn away from the love of pleasure, the love of money, the love of self, the love of the praise of man, the love of the world. Turn away from that and turn back to God. Repentance includes a proper recognition that our failure to love Christ and to love others as we ought, that's a sin. It's not just struggling. It's not just a mistake. It's not just falling short. It is those things, but it is a sin. And it calls for repentance. It calls for confession. It calls for godly sorrow that our hearts have grown so cold towards a Christ who would love us so perfectly. It's wrong that we would not love him who has loved us so well. There should be a godly sorrow and a desire to change. This kind of repentance will cry out to God for the grace of forgiveness. Forgive me, Jesus, for not loving you to the degree that you deserve. Forgive me for not loving people as you call me to. This kind of repentance also cries out not just for the grace of forgiveness, but also for the grace that empowers obedience in a new direction. Repentance is turning from our sin, turning towards Christ, and then making tracks in that new direction. And it's grace that empowers us every step of the way. And a heart of repentance cries out to God and says, oh, give me the strength to do what you call me to do. Because I want to love you. And I want to love as you call me to. He says, remember, repent, and then do do. He says, remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. This repentance, this turning from sin and to Christ, it leads to change. It bears fruit. It results in action. Repentance isn't just sort of crying and feeling sorry for yourself. It, it produces change. When we turn from sin and towards God, we start making progress. For the Ephesians, God desired to see their hearts turned towards him, not just affirming his truth. They were good at that. Not just obeying his law. They were good about that in terms of morality and holiness. He wanted them to love him. To love him with a genuine and faithful kind of love that would then spill out into love for others. A love that would overflow into worship and obedience and ministry to people. He gives them a warning at the end there of verse 5. He says, if not, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus says, listen, if you don't respond to my warning, if you don't respond to this call to repent and to do, there will be consequences. Jesus opened up this letter by announcing that he's the one who walks among the lampstands. And he has the power and the authority to remove theirs. Jesus can shut off the electricity. Jesus can blow out the candles. Jesus has the authority not only to command the church and to judge the church, but also to remove his divine presence from them, to withdraw the source of spiritual life, the source of spiritual power from their assembly. Listen, sometimes churches die because Jesus pulls the plug. You can go back through history, and it'd be impossible to count the, the number of churches that have closed their doors, the number of churches that have ceased to function. The number of churches that have ceased to spread the gospel, ceased to worship Christ, ceased to make disciples because they're just not there anymore. 
Sometimes that's maybe the result of the enemy coming in and doing things. Yes, there's opposition, there's persecution. Sometimes it's just tragedy that strikes. But sometimes Jesus is the one who ends a church. There may be churches that continue to be for a time after Jesus removes their lampstand. There may continue to be some measure of activity. There might be a lot of people there. There might be a really, you know, fat budget with a lot of money coming through. There might be the appearance of life. But just because a church is physically present, physically active, physically at work, that doesn't mean that Jesus is there. It doesn't mean that Christ is at work. There may be a group of people gathering, but they are no longer a church in the true spiritual sense of the word. That should sober us. It should sober us. It's a warning. It's intended to have an impact upon us. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. But that's a reference to the universal church. That's not a promise that any one single congregation won't come to an end. We should think about how many churches may be out there meeting today, but Christ is not there. His spirit is not there. There's no life. There's no power. There's no communion with God in those churches. This text teaches us that even if the doctrine is right, even if the track record looks good, even if you've had some great leadership in the past, it's possible for us to lose our first love. And if that failure goes unchecked, if a church persists in that failure to love, then that spiritual failure will lead to disaster for the church. Now, Ephesus isn't there yet. Jesus hasn't removed their lampstand yet. But he says, listen, if nothing changes, if you do not repent, that's where you're heading. That's the path you're on. Loyalty to Christ is seen and valued. Jesus commends them for their faithfulness. But love for Christ is essential. Love for Christ is essential. And Jesus condemns the coldness of their hearts. There's a third insight I want to pull out. Third, life in Christ is available. Life in Christ is available. Look in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So at this point in this very short little letter, Jesus has commended them for what they're doing well. He's exposed their failure and warned them of the consequences if nothing changes. But here he concludes his letter with a word of encouragement. He leaves them with a promise. He says, he who has ears to hear Let him hear. This reminds me of of the way Jesus often talked. If you read the Gospels, Jesus often spoke this way. And you can tell John spent a lot of time with Jesus and that he's now talking to Jesus. So we see this same sort of phraseology again. This, This admonition, he who has an ear, let him hear. It's really an invitation to individuals, to individual people who are members of the group. There are some in the church who will hear what Jesus is saying. And even if the church as a whole does not change, Jesus still expects individuals to personally respond to Christ. Listen, regardless of what your church does, you as an individual are accountable to Christ. 
And there's a promise of reward for those who hear and those who respond to the word of Christ. It's a word of urgency. Listen, pay attention to what the Spirit is saying through this text to us today. Do you hear his voice? Do you sense the truth and the power, the authority, the urgency of these words? Then pay attention. Here's what Jesus promises. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There's a promise here for the overcomers. Remember that, that word that is sort of at the root of the Nicolaitans, that word nikeo, that verb to conquer and overcome? Jesus here, I think, is there's a play on words. He's saying, listen, here's who the real overcomers are. The real overcomers are not the Nicolaitans, despite what flag they may wave. The true overcomers are the ones who hear my voice and who believe in me, and I promise them a reward. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, it says, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Listen, the one who overcomes is the one who believes. The one who overcomes is the one who is born of God and who has genuine faith that has latched hold of Jesus Christ and does not let go until the finish line. At the end of the day, these are the overcomers. And those who persevere in loving Christ and holding on to the truth of his gospel, who have that kind of faith, Jesus says there is eternal life coming. Regardless of what happens to this church or this congregation, if you believe and if you love me, here's where it leads. He says, I will give, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. The word for paradise here that, that Jesus uses is a borrowed word. It's a borrowed word from the Persian language, and it means a walled-off garden. It's a garden that's been cultivated and beautified. And, and when you pair this imagery of a walled-off garden with the tree of life, this is an unmistakable reference from, by the last book of the Bible to the first book of the Bible. Points us back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis. And although the first sinners were exiled from God's garden, those who believe are promised entrance into paradise to go back into the garden. And although those first sinners were forbidden to take from the tree of life, that's why they were exiled. That's why those two angelic beings were, were posted at the gate to keep them from coming in and eating from the tree of life. Jesus promises, if you believe, if you're an overcomer, I will give it to you. I will give you to eat from the tree of life. Commentator Alan Johnson says it best, what was lost in Eden will be more than regained in Christ. What a promise of encouragement. This paradise is better than any pagan temple. Yes, they were missing out on all the festivities going on at the temple of Artemis, but that's because they had something better to look forward to. The seven wonders of the ancient world will not compare with the glories of heaven. And the eternal life that is gained in Christ will be worth anything that is lost or sacrificed in this world. I think this promise, this encouragement to them at the end of this letter, not only would have strengthened their will to, to endure and keep persevering, I actually think Jesus is speaking to the problem of their cold heart. Listen, the Christ who died to bring us this paradise, the Christ who laid down his life on a tree, so that he could give to us to eat from a different tree, hanging on a tree of death so that we could eat from the tree of life. This Jesus loves us, 
And he promises us this blessing and this reward if we will believe in him. That's what stirs up love for Christ. As John wrote elsewhere, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. This love ought to stir up a response of love in our hearts towards Christ. Listen, Christ sees and values a faithful church. This letter affirms for us that doctrinal and moral purity do matter. I hope you get that. Even with this emphasis on love, there's also a value for truth. Scripture never pits truth against love. Scripture never pits holiness against grace. Jesus wants both. But Christ sees and judges the loveless church. Christ condemns a loveless orthodoxy. We can get it all right doctrinally, and still be missing the heart that Christ wants to see in us. This is really the most basic expression, isn't it, of what it means to be a Christian. It's that we are a people who love Jesus. I think sometimes we forget that. We neglect that amidst all the complexities of discerning the doctrinal and philosophical challenges of our day. Amidst all the complexities of marriage and parenting and the challenges that we face in our workplaces and in our world amidst all the complexities of dealing with our own sin and untangling our own experiences and inclinations, at the heart of all of that, you boil it all down, it's this one simple issue. Do you love Jesus? That's at the heart of all of it. Do you love Christ? Perhaps you've recognized that today, as you sit here, there is very little love in your heart for Christ. Do you remember? Do you remember what it used to be like? If you do, then repent. Turn. Return to Christ. Listen, you can't live on yesterday's grace. We need a fresh, ongoing experience of God's grace, a fresh, renewed grasp of the gospel, a fresh and daily connection with our Savior where we receive his mercy and we express our love to him. You can't live on yesterday's experience of grace, yesterday's expression of worship and love for Christ. If you remember, then repent in return. The solution is repentance. Some of us may need to go home from here and get down on our knees and cry out with a broken heart that God would cleanse us from our idolatry because we've loved other things. We need to ask him to forgive us for our apathy and awaken within us a fresh wave of genuine love for Christ in our hearts. Maybe some of you, as you look back, there's nothing to remember. Maybe you've never loved Christ. If that's the case, what you need today is a new heart that's actually capable of loving Jesus. The solution is not just to grit your teeth and and squeeze your fists together and try really hard to manufacture this love for Christ. This love is a response to his love. This love is a fruit of the spirit which indwells a new heart. You can't love Christ unless he changes you. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you need to be made new. You need to trust in the gospel and be saved. Then and only then will you be able to offer love to Christ. Let me encourage you, church. Christ welcomes and rewards the church that perseveres in faith, those who believe in Christ, those who love him and who trust him. There is a great day of reward and rest that is coming. Jesus promises us, church, that it's worth it. It, It's worth it to endure all the different challenges we face. So listen, pay attention to the promise. 
It will encourage you. It will motivate you, stimulate you to love. Listen to the assurance that Jesus gives that paradise and eternal life awaits. Christ desires a faithful church that is marked by love. I hope that you have ears that hear, that you're paying attention to what the Spirit says to the churches so that we as a church might heed the warnings and aspire to be commended in these ways as well so that Jesus, as he looks at us through this rubric of what he wants to see in the church so that he might look upon us and be pleased and be honored by a church that is faithful to the truth and has a heart of love for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you've made it clear in your word what it is that you desire to see. You want us to be discerning. You want us to uphold true doctrine. You want us to be on guard against immorality and sin. You want us to be holy, pure in our doctrine, pure in our behavior. But underneath that, you desire that that pure doctrine and that that zeal for pure living, you want that to come from a heart of love for you. Lord, it's so convicting to read this text, to, to preach this text. It's hard for any of us to imagine that we have at any point loved you as we ought. But Lord, it is possible to love you truly and genuinely, even if not perfectly. Lord, we know that love is fruit of the Spirit and that we need your help. We ask you today, Lord, to forgive us for our failure to love. Forgive us for our coldness and our apathy, our boredom, our distractedness, our idolatry. Forgive us, Lord, and create in us a new heart. Restore to us the joy of our salvation so that we love you with a fresh and fervent love. Lord, we desire to love you as you deserve, and we desire to reflect your love to the people around us, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, to love a world that is lost and in darkness to love them enough to share the good news that everyone who believes, who overcomes by faith, will enter into paradise to eat from the tree of life, to be with you forever. We thank you for your grace, the grace that points out our sin and then the grace that forgives us, the grace that changes us. So Lord, do your work, have your way in us individually and as a church. We pray this in your name, amen.